Third, new and enlarged views of the Holy Spirit mark a regenerate mind. Having received the Holy Ghost as a quickener, he feels the need of him now as a teacher, a sanctifier, a comforter, and a sealer. As a teacher, discovering to him more of the hidden evil of the heart, more knowledge of God, of his word, and of his son. As a sanctifier, carrying forward the work of grace in his soul, impressing more deeply on the heart the divine image, and bringing every thought and feeling and word into sweet, holy, and filial obedience to the law of Jesus. As a comforter, leading him in the hour of his deep trial to Christ, comforting by unfolding the sympathy and tenderness of Jesus, and the exceeding preciousness and peculiar fitness of the many promises with which the word of truth abounds for the consolation of the Lord's afflicted. As a sealer, the Holy Ghost impresses upon his heart the sense of pardon, acceptance, and adoption, and the Holy Ghost himself entering as the earnest of the inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Oh, what exalted views does he now have of the blessed and eternal spirit, of God's personal glory, his work, his offices, his influences, God's love, tenderness, and faithfulness. The ear is open to the softest whisper of his voice. The heart expands to the gentlest impression of his sealing, sanctifying influence. Remembering that he is a temple of the Holy Ghost, he desires so to walk humbly, softly, watchfully, and prayerfully, avoiding everything that would grieve the Spirit, resigning every known sin that would dishonor and cause him to withdraw. The one single aim of the life of the regenerate soul is to walk so as to please God, that God in all things may be glorified. Fourth, a new spring of action is a distinguished feature of the renewed man, which must not be overlooked. Every unregenerate man has his rule of action, or, in other words, some great governing principle which is his rule and standard in all that he does. The controlling principle of an unrenewed mind is self. His rule is to adopt such a course and to do such things as either gratify or elevate himself. Beyond this narrow circle... The unsaved never moves. Other and more spiritual motives he's a stranger to, but quickened by the Spirit, born of God, created anew in Christ Jesus, the will of God is now his rule of action, the glory of God his aim, and the love of Christ his constraining motive. The expulsive power of a new affection has found a home and a dwelling place in his heart, and when his own will comes into competition with God's will, under the holy sway of this new affection, the love of Christ, self is renounced, yea, swallowed up in God, and God in Christ is all in all. Fifth, it would be an imperfect enumeration of some of the strong features of the new creature did we omit to notice the growing nature and tendency of the vital principle of grace thus implanted in the heart of the one born again. Nothing more strikingly and truly proves the reality, we would say the divinity of the work within, than the growing energy and holy tendency that ever accompany it. It is the property of that which has life in itself to increase, to multiply itself. The seed cast into the earth will germinate. Presently will appear the tender sprout. This will advance to the young sapling, and this in time to the gigantic tree with its overshadowing branches and richly laden branches. Obeying the law of its nature, 
the tree aspires to that perfection which belongs to it. It must grow. Nothing can prevent it but such a wound as will injure the vital principle or the cutting of it down entirely at the roots. The life of God in the soul of man contains the principle of growth. He that is not advancing, adding grace to grace, strength to strength, fruitful in every good word and work, increasing in the knowledge of God, of his own heart, of the preciousness, fullness, and all-sufficiency of Jesus, and in divine conformity growing up into Christ in all things, has great reason to suspect the absence of the divine life in his soul. Has he been born again? There may be such that suggests resemblance to the new birth. There may be the portrait finely executed, the marble statue exquisitely chiseled, but there is not the living man, the new creature. We can expect no increase of perfection in a finished picture or in a piece of statuary. That which has not life in it cannot grow. This is self-evident. An individual may look like a believer and even die with a false peace like the righteous and all the while retain his dwelling among the tombs. But the spirit we are now considering is that of a man truly born again. Philippians 3, 12-14 Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark. O holy resolve of a regenerate man, here is the springing up of the well of living water in the heart. Here is the turning of the soul to God. See how the fountain rises. See how the flame ascends. It is the mighty energy of God the Holy Ghost drawing the soul upward, heavenward, Godward. Let not the Christian reader close this chapter with a burdened heart. Let no dear child of God write hard and bitter things against himself as he reads this last sentence. Let him not come to any hasty, unbelieving, doubting, and God-dishonoring conclusions. What are you to yourself? Worthless, vile, empty. What is Jesus to you? Precious, lovely, all your salvation and all your desire? What is sin to you, the most hateful thing in the world? And what is holiness, the most lovely, the most longed for? What is the throne of grace to you, the most attractive spot? And the cross, the sweetest resting place in the universe? What is God to you, your God and Father, the spring of all your joys, the fountainhead of all your bliss, the center where your affections meet? Is it so? Then you are born again. Then you are a child of God. Then you shall never die eternally. Cheer up, precious soul. The day of your redemption draws near. Those low views of yourself, that brokenness, that inward mourning, that secret confession, that longing for more spirituality, more grace, more devotion, more love, does but prove the existence, reality, and growth of God's work within you. God the Holy Spirit is there, and these are but the fruits and evidences of His indwelling. Look up then, reader, and let the thought cheer you. That soul never perished that felt itself to be vile and Jesus to be precious. Thus have we endeavored to unfold some of the prominent and essential attributes of the great work of regeneration. 
The next chapter will exhibit the author of the work and a more experimental and practical view of its nature and tendency. And may the anointing of the Holy Ghost rest upon the reader while perusing it. Chapter 3, The Spirit a Quickener, The Soul After Conversion, John 3, 6, That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. No truth shines with clearer luster in the divine word than that salvation from first to last is of God. It is convincingly and beautifully shown to be the work of the glorious Trinity in unity. Each person of the Godhead occupying a distinct and peculiar office, and yet all engaged upon and, as it were, coalescing in this mighty undertaking, the Father, represented as giving His elect in covenant engagement to His Son, John 17, 2, the Son represented as assuming in eternity the office of surety, and in the fullness of time appearing in human form, and suffering for their sins upon the cross, Romans 8, 3. The Holy Ghost is represented as convincing of sin, working faith in the heart, and leading to the atoning blood, John 16, 8. Thus is salvation shown to be the entire work of the triune God, distinct in office, yet one in purpose. We have now more immediately to do with that department in the stupendous plan which is ascribed especially and peculiarly to God, the Eternal Spirit. We have already viewed the sinner in the various phases of his unconverted state. How awful did that state appear! The understanding, the will, the affections were all dark, perverted and alienated from God, with enmity and death marking every unconverted man. We have seen this state reversed, the temple restored, and God dwelling again with men, the heart brought back to its lawful sovereign, and clinging to him with all the grasp of its renewed affections, darkness succeeded by light, enmity by love, ingratitude by praise, and the whole soul turning with the rapidity and certainty of the magnetic needle to God, the center of its high and holy attraction. To whose power are we to attribute this marvelous change to the sinner himself? That cannot be. For the very principle that led to the first step in departure from God, and which still urges him on in every successive one, supplies him with no adequate power or motive to return to the mere exercise of some other human agency, that is equally impossible. For in the whole empire of created intelligence, God has nowhere delegated such power and authority to a single individual. We must look for the secret of this spiritual change outside of the creature, away from men and angels, and seek it in God, the eternal spirit. God looks within himself for the power, and he finds it there even in his own omnipotent spirit. This is the great and spiritual truth we are now to consider. Regeneration, the new birth, the sole and special work of the Holy Spirit. The doctrine that assigns to human power an efficient part in the new birth is based upon the supposition that there is in man an inherent principle, the natural bias of which is to holiness, and that because God has created him a rational being endowed with a will, 
understanding, conscience, affections, and other intellectual and moral properties. Therefore, the simple, unaided, voluntary exercise of these powers, a simple choosing of that which the conscience and the understanding point out to be good in view of certain motives presented to the mind, is all that's required to bring the soul into the possession of the divine nature. With all the meekness and affection, yet uncompromising regard for the glory of God, we would expose on scriptural grounds alone the fallacy and the dangerous tendency of this hypothesis, begging the reader to bear in mind that which in the previous chapter has been advanced touching the actual state of the natural man, we would earnestly call his attention to the following passages. John 3, 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. It is, morally, nothing but flesh. It is carnal, corrupt, depraved, sinful, and has no discernment or perception whatever of spiritual things. This is the sense in which the term flesh, as opposed to spirit, is to be interpreted in God's word. It signifies the corruption of nature. Galatians 5.17 For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other. Again, Romans 8, 5 through 8, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. What further proof do we need of the natural sinfulness and impotence of man? And yet the powerful testimony borne to this by God's word is by no means exhausted. Do we speak of the mind of the unregenerate man? Ephesians 4.18, having the understanding darkened of his knowledge. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Of his heart, Ecclesiastes 9.3, The heart of the sons of men is full of evil. Of the love of a man to God, Romans 8.7, Enmity. Of a man's ability to believe, John 12.39, They could not believe. Of his power to acknowledge Christ, 1 Corinthians 12.3, No man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Thus, minute, clear, and solemn is the testimony of the Holy Ghost himself, touching the real amount of human power brought to bear upon the production of spiritual life in the soul of man. So far from cooperating with God in the new creation, the natural man presents every resistance and opposition to the new birth. There is not only a passive aversion, but an active resistance to the work of God. The stream of man's natural inclinations, as we have fully proved from the scriptures of truth in the previous chapter, runs counter to all holiness. A strong and steady current has set in against God and all that God loves. The pride of reason, the perverseness of the will, the enmity of the mind, the heart's love of sin are all up in arms against the entrance of the Holy Spirit. Satan, the great enemy of God and man, has been too long in quiet and undisturbed possession of the soul to resign his dominion without a strong and fearful struggle to maintain it. 
When the Spirit of God knocks at the door of the heart, every ally is summoned by the strong man arm to resist the Spirit and bar and bolt each avenue to his entrance. All is alarm, agitation, and commotion within. There is a danger of being dispossessed, and every argument and persuasion and contrivance must be resorted to by the devil in order to retain his long undisputed throne. The world is summoned to throw out its most enticing bait, ambition, wealth, literary and political distinction, pleasure in her thousand forms of fascination and power, all are made to pass as in review before the mind of the sinner. The flesh exerts its power, the love of sin is appealed to, affection for some long-cherished lust, some long-indulged habit, some fond amusement, some darling taste. These, inspired with new vigor, are summoned to the rescue. Thus Satan, the world, and the flesh are opposed to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in the great work of spiritual regeneration. Oh, let no individual be so deceived as to believe that when God the Eternal Spirit enters the soul, he finds the temple swept and garnished and prepared for his reception, that without the exercise of his own omnipotent and irresistible power, the heart bounds to welcome him and reason bows submissively to his government, and the will yields an instant and humble compliance. Oh, no! If he that is in the regenerate were not greater and more powerful than he that is in the world, such is the enmity of the human heart to God Almighty, such the strong power and love of sin, such the supreme control which Satan exerts over the whole empire of man, God would be forever shut out, and the soul forever lost. But... See how clearly regeneration is proved to be the work of the Spirit. A few quotations from the Holy Bible will set the question at rest. Examine the following. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Other passages show the power exerted in regeneration to be infinite. God says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. The same power that called the material creation from nothing into existence affects the new and spiritual creation. God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The same power that raised up Jesus from the dead, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. We need not multiply scripture proofs. God has written it as with a sunbeam, that we are his workmanship, and that the eternal spirit is his mighty agent. We now proceed to show in what manner the blessed spirit commences, carries forward, and sustains this great work in the soul. First, the commencement of spiritual life is sudden. 
We are far from confining the Spirit to a certain prescribed order in this or any other part of His work. He is a sovereign, as we shall presently show, and therefore works according to His own will. But there are some methods He more frequently adopts than others. We would not say that all conversion is a sudden work. There is a knowledge of sin, conviction of its guilt, repentance before God on account of it. These are frequently slow and gradual in their advance, but the first communication of divine light and life to the soul is always sudden, sudden and instantaneous as was the creation of natural light. God said, let there be light, and there was light it was but a word, and in an instant chaos rolled away, and every object and scene in nature was bathed in light and glory. Sudden as was the communication of life to Lazarus, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! It was but a word, and in an instant he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. So it is in the first communication of divine light and life to the soul. The eternal spirit says, let there be light, and in a moment there is light. He speaks again, come forth, and in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead in sins and trespasses is raised incorruptible and is changed. Striking illustrations of the suddenness of the spirit's operation are afforded in the cases of Saul of Tarsus and of the thief upon the cross. How sudden was the communication of light and life to their souls. It was no long and previous process of spiritual illumination. It was the result of no lengthened chain of reasoning, no labored argumentation in a moment. And under circumstances most unfavorable to the change, as we should think, certainly at a period when the rebellion of the heart rose the most fiercely against God, as Paul says, a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun poured its transforming radiance into the mind of the enraged persecutor, and a voice conveying life to the soul reached the conscience of the dying thief as well. Both were translated from darkness into light in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. How many who read this page may say, Thus it was with me. God the Eternal Spirit arrested me when my heart's deep rebellion was most up in arms against Him. It was a sudden and a short work, but it was mighty and effectual. It was unexpected and rapid, but deep and thorough. In a moment the hidden evil was brought to view, the deep and dark fountain broken up. All my iniquities passed before me, and all my secret sins seemed placed in the light of God's countenance. My soul sank down in deep mire, yea, hell opened its mouth to receive me. Do not overlook this wise and gracious method of the Blessed Spirit's operation in regeneration. It is instantaneous. The means may have been simple. Perhaps it was the loss of a friend, an alarming illness, a word of reproof or admonition dropped from a parent or a companion, the singing of a hymn, the hearing of a sermon, or some text of Scripture winged with His power to your conscience. In the twinkling of an eye, the soul dead in trespasses and sins was quickened and translated into newness of life. O oh, blessed work of the blessed and eternal Spirit, O oh, mighty operation, O oh, inscrutable wisdom, what a change has now passed over the whole man! Overshadowed by the Holy Ghost, that which is begotten in the soul is the divine life, a holy, influential, never-dying principle. Truly, 
He is a new creature, old things passing away and all things becoming new. For this change, let it not be supposed that there is in the subject any previous preparation. The author is not affirming that the Holy Spirit has no dealings with a sinner prior to regeneration, but that the sinner does nothing to prepare himself for this saving act of God. There can be no preparation for light or life. What preparation was there in chaos? What preparation was there in the cold clay limbs of Lazarus? What in Paul? What in the dying thief? The work of regeneration is supremely the work of the Spirit. The means may be employed and are to be employed in accordance with the divine purpose, yet they are not to be deified. They are but means, profiting nothing without the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is His work and not man's. We have remarked that the first implantation of the divine life in the soul is sudden. We would, however, observe that the advance of that work is, in most cases, gradual. Let this be an encouragement to any of you who are writing hard and bitter things against yourselves in consequence of your little progress. The growth of divine knowledge in your soul is often slow. The work of much time and of protracted discipline. Look at the eleven disciples. What slow, tardy scholars were they, even though taught immediately from the lips of Jesus? And who teacheth like him? They drank their knowledge from the very fountain. They received their light directly from the sun itself. And yet, with all these superior advantages, the personal ministry, instructions, miracles, and example of our dear Lord, how slow of understanding were the disciples to comprehend, and how slow of heart to believe all that He so laboriously, clearly, and patiently taught them. Yes, the advance of the soul in the divine life, its knowledge of sin, of the hidden evil, the heart's deep treachery, intricate windings, Satan's subtlety, the glory of the gospel, the preciousness of Christ and its own interest in the great salvation, is not the work of a day, nor of a year, but of many days, perhaps many years of deep plowing, long and often painful discipline of windy storm and tempest, but... This life in the soul is not less real nor less divine because its growth is slow and gradual. It may be small and feeble in its degree, yet in its nature it is the life that never dies. The figures and illustrations employed by the Holy Ghost to set forth the character and advance of His own work in the soul are frequently such as convey the idea of feebleness. Thus, in Isaiah chapter 40, we read verse 11, He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. Can language more strikingly and more touchingly unfold the feebleness and often burdened state of God's dear saints? Again, Isaiah 42, 3, A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. Had it been described as a reed only, that had been deeply expressive of its weakness, but a bruised reed seems to unfold the very lowest degree of feebleness. Had this gracious work been compared to flax merely, we should have thought it small indeed, but smoking flax seems to represent it as ready to die, and still both are the product of the eternal spirit. 
Never shall the bruised reed be quite broken, nor the smoking flax be quite extinguished. The Lord will tenderly bind up and strengthen the one, and will carefully watch over and nourish the other. How many of the Lord's beloved ones, the children of godly parents brought up in the ways of God, are at a loss in reviewing the map of their pilgrimage to remember the starting point of their spiritual life. They well know that they left the city of destruction, that by a strong and a mighty arm they were brought out of Egypt, but so gently, so imperceptibly, so softly, and so gradually were they led, first a thought, then a desire, then a prayer, that they could no more discover when the first dawning of divine life took place in their soul than they could tell the instant when natural light first broke upon chaos. Still, it is real. It is no fancy that he who has been born again has inherited an evil principle in the heart. It is no fancy that that principle has been subdued by grace. It is no fancy that he was once a child of darkness. It is no fancy that he is now a child of light. He may mourn in secret over his little advance, his tardy progress, his weak faith, his small grace, his strong corruption, his many infirmities, his startings aside like a deceitful bow. Yet he can say, though I am the chief of sinners and the least of all saints, though I see within so much to abase me and without so much to mourn over, yet this one thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. I see that which I never saw before, a hatefulness in sin and a beauty in holiness. I see a vileness and emptiness in myself, and a preciousness and fullness in Jesus. Do not forget then, reader, that feeble grace is yet real grace. If the soul but hungers and thirsts, if it touches but the hem, it shall be saved. We must also point out the sovereignty of the Spirit's operations in the production of this work. There is a sovereignty in all the works and dealings of God. If it be asked what God's own definition of His sovereignty is, we refer the inquirer to His words. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. Romans chapter 9. Here is the sovereign, how like himself he speaks. He carries forward his gracious purposes of infinite wisdom and love, chooses or rejects, reveals or withholds, working all things after the counsel of his own will, giving no account either to angels or to men of any of his matters. Now, notice the unfolding of sovereignty in the operations of the Blessed Spirit. Thus did Christ declare it. John chapter 3, verse 8, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Here is his sovereignty. Mark how striking is the figure. The wind bids defiance to man's governing power. It is as irresistible in its influence as it is mighty in its strength. We cannot command it, nor can we control it. It is alike out of our power to summon as it is to soothe the wind. It comes, we know not whence. It goes, we know not whither. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. We do not say that the Spirit is not resisted. He is resisted strongly and perseveringly, but He is not overpowered. All the enmity and carnality of the heart rises in direct opposition to Him. But when bent upon a mission of love, when in accordance with the eternal purpose He comes to save, 
Not all the powers on earth or in hell can effectually resist him. Like the mighty element of wind, he bears down all opposition, sweeps away every barrier, overcomes every difficulty, and the sinner, made willing in the day of his power, Psalm 110, is brought to the feet of Jesus, there meekly and gratefully to sit clothed and in his right mind, Mark chapter 5. His power, who can withstand? Whether he speaks in the still, small voice of tender, persuasive love, or whether he comes in the mighty, rushing wind of deep and overwhelming conviction, his influence is unquenchable, his power irresistible. He effectually worketh in them that believe. But his operation is as sovereign as it is mighty. He comes to whom he will. He comes when he will. He comes in the mode he will. We cannot bring him by an effort of our own will, nor can we by an effort of our will compel him to depart. He bloweth where he listeth. We hear the sound, we see the effect, but how he works, why he works, and why in a particular way he works, he does not reveal to mortals. Even so, O thou blessed and eternal Spirit, for so it seemeth good in thy sight. We will not expand this part of the subject by citing the numerous examples of this truth which abound in the Scriptures of Truth. The reader may refer to them at his leisure. If they do not spontaneously recur to his recollection at this moment, we would merely now urge him to examine the cases of Jacob and Esau, the publican and Pharisees, Saul of Tarsus and the men who journeyed with him, the two thieves upon the cross, and see if the sovereignty of the divine choice and the operation of the eternal spirit are not written out in their histories as with a sunbeam. Is the reader a child of God? Then we will not confine him to the word of divine truth. We summon him as a witness to the sovereignty of the blessed Spirit's operation. Ye are my witnesses, saith God. Who and what made you to differ? You have been taken out of your family, your kindred, your friends, your companions. From this circle it may be that you alone have been selected, called, and made a child of grace, an heir of glory. The others, where are they? Still dead in trespasses and sins? Where are they, living in the world and to the world, lovers of pleasure, lovers of self, lovers of sin, hating God, rejecting Christ, and warring against the Spirit speaking to them in the Word, though providences and by the conscience pricked? Where are they, bursting through every restraint and bending their footsteps down to the doom of the lost? Where are they, gone many of them into eternity, past the confines of mercy, in hell lifting up their eyes, being in torments? And what are you? A sinner saved by grace, a sinner chosen and called, pardoned and justified, washed and clothed, adopted and sanctified, brought to the foot of the cross, constrained to welcome Jesus, to take up the cross and to follow Him. Oh, the electing love of God! Oh, the distinguishing grace of Jesus! Oh, the sovereign operation of the eternal Spirit! Who art thou, O man, that repliest against God? Bow down to the sovereignty of His will. Silently wonder and adore Him who says, Be still and know that I am God. 
Has my reader hitherto found this doctrine a hard saying? Has he been prone to object to it and pass it by? I would with all meekness and affection urge him seriously, seriously, candidly, and prayerfully to examine it by the light of the divine word. Let him not object to it, lest he be found to fight against God. Let him not pass it by, lest he grieve the spirit and rob his own soul of an inestimable blessing. O oh, precious truth, it stains the pride of human merit, it lays the axe at the root of self, it humbles and abases, it empties and lays low in a low place, and describes all the praise, honor, and glory, might, majesty, and dominion of the new creation in the soul to the triune God. Intimately connected with the sovereignty is the free grace of the Spirit's operation, no worthiness of the creature allures him to the sinner's breast. What worthiness can be supposed to exist? What merit can there be in an adjudged criminal, an outlawed rebel, a poor insolvent, one whose mind is enmity, whose heart is swelling with treason against God, his government and his son, one who owes ten thousand talents and has nothing to pay? None whatsoever and that the eternal spirit should enter the heart of such a one, convincing of sin, subduing the hatred, breaking down the rebellion, leading to Jesus, and sealing pardon and peace upon the conscience. Oh, what but free grace, unmerited mercy, sovereign love could thus have constrained him. And as he exercises his sovereignty in conversion, let none suppose that that which decides him in the selection of his subject is anything more worthy or more lowly, which he may discover in one more than in another. Oh, no. He often selects the poorest, the vilest, the most depraved and fallen, as if utterly to explode all idea of human merit, and to reflect in its richest luster the free grace of God's holy heart. Behold, then, the grace of the blessed Spirit's operation. He comes, he knocks, he unbars, he enters, and creates all things new, irrespective of any merit of the creature, if merit that may be called, which is so wretched and poor that language fails adequately to describe it. Oh, the riches of His grace, how it is magnified, how it is illustrated, how it shines in the calling of a poor sinner. Lord, what didst thou see in me, exclaims the convinced soul, that moved thee with compassion, that drew thee to my breast, that constrained thee to make me thy temple? Nothing on my part but poverty, wretchedness, and misery. On thy part nothing but love sovereignty, and unmerited favor. Reader, do not turn from this glorious feature of the blessed Spirit's operation. It glorifies God while it humbles man. It exalts Jesus on the ruins of the creature. Poor in spirit, blessed are you. You are rich in your poverty. You are exalted in your lowliness. All the love that is in God, all the grace that is in Jesus, and all the tenderness that is in the Spirit, all, all is for you. Lift up your head, then, and let your heart sing for gladness. Though poor, though nothing, though despised, though worthless in your own eyes, ah, and worthless in the eyes of the vaunting Pharisee, yet for you Jehovah pours out all the treasures of His grace, gives His well-beloved Son, and sends His blessed Spirit. 
All things are yours, you poor in spirit, you broken in heart. All things are yours. How vast the compass of your blessings. All things are yours, for ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Oh, could you know how dear you are to the heart of God. Could you know with what tenderness Jesus yearns over you, how the blessed Spirit delights to make you his dwelling place. You would rejoice in that you are made low. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Isaiah 57:15. The operation of the spirit is effectual. As we have necessarily touched upon this feature in former parts of the chapter, especially in the preceding sentences, it seems to demand a less extended unfolding here. Still, it presents an important and glorious aspect of the Spirit's work upon which we cannot reflect without clearer, more elevated and sanctifying views of His operations in the work of regeneration. The reader will not need to be reminded that the great change which takes place in the soul at regeneration is frequently termed by the Holy Ghost, in various parts of His Word, a calling. A reference to a few passages will prove it. Galatians 1.15 Paul speaks of his being called by grace. Romans 8.28 The saints of God are spoken of as the called according to His purpose. 1 Peter 2.9 Called out of darkness. Romans 8.30, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Jude 1, preserved in Christ Jesus and called. 2 Timothy 1.9, who hath called us with an holy calling. Hebrews 3.1, partakers of the heavenly calling. 2 Peter 2.10, make your calling and election sure. Thus it is clear that he who is raised from that dead, brought out of darkness, and born again, is called. The blessed agent by whom he is called is the eternal spirit. It is the spirit that quickeneth and calleth. The point with which we have now especially to deal is the effectual nature of his calling. There is an external and also an internal call of the Spirit. An external and also an internal call. The external call is thus alluded to. Proverbs 1.24 I have called and ye have refused. Matthew 22.14 Many are called, but few are chosen. This outward call of the Spirit is made in various ways. In the Word, in the glorious proclamation of the Gospel, through the providences of God, those of mercy and those of judgment, the warnings of ministers, the admonitions of friends, and, not less powerful, the awakening of the natural conscience. By these means does the Holy Spirit call sinners to repentance. In this sense, every man who hears the gospel, who is encircled with the means of grace, and who bears about with him a secret but ever faithful monitor, is called by the Spirit. The existence of this call places the sinner in an attitude of fearful responsibility, and the rejection of this call exposes him to a still more fearful doom. God has never poured out his wrath upon man without first extending the olive branch of peace. Mercy has invariably preceded the judgment. I have called and ye have refused. All day long I have stretched forth my hands. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
He reasons, he argues, he expostulates with the sinner. Come, let us reason together, is his invitation. Bring your strong arguments. He instructs, warns, and invites. He places before the mind the most solemn considerations, urged by duty and interest. He presses his own claims and appeals to the individual interests of the soul, but all seems ineffectual. Oh, what a view does this give us of the long-suffering patience of God towards the rebellious, that he should stretch out his hand to a sinner, that instead of wrath there should be mercy, instead of cursing there should be blessing, that instead of instant punishment there should be the patience and forbearance that invites, allures, and reasons. Oh, who is a God like unto our God? I have called, and ye refused. I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But there is the special, direct, and effectual call of the Spirit in the elect of God, without which all other calling is vain. God says, I will put my Spirit within them. Christ says, The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. And in the following passages, reference is made to the effectual operation of God the Spirit. Ephesians 3, 7, Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of His power. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13, The word of God which effectually worketh in you that believe. Thus, through the instrumentality of the truth, the Spirit is represented as effectually working in the soul. When he called before, there was no inward, supernatural, secret power accompanying that call to the conscience. Now there is an energy put forth with the call, which awakens the conscience, breaks the heart, convinces the judgment, opens the eye of the soul, and pours a new and an alarming sound upon the hitherto deaf ear. Notice the blessed effects. The scales fall from the eyes. The veil is torn from the mind. The deep fountains of evil in the heart are broken up. The sinner sees himself lost and undone without pardon, without a righteousness, without acceptance, without a God, without a Savior, without a hope. Awful condition! What shall I do to be saved? is his cry. I am a wretch undone. I look within me. All is dark and vile. I look around me. Everything seems but the image of my woe. I look above me. I see only an angry God. Whichever way I look, there is hell. And were he now to send me there, just and right would he be. But blessed be God, no poor soul that ever uttered such language, prompted by such feelings, ever died in despair. That faithful spirit who begins the good work effectually carries it on and completes it. Presently he leads him to the cross of Jesus, unveils to his eye of glimmering faith a suffering, wounded, bleeding, dying Savior. And yet a Savior with stretched out arms. That Savior speaks. Oh, did ever music sound so melodious? All this I do for you, this cross for you, these sufferings for you, this blood for you, these stretched out arms for you. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Look unto me, and be ye saved. Only believe. Are ye lost? I can save you. Are you guilty? I can cleanse you. Are you poor? I can enrich you. Have you sunk to the depths? I can raise you. Are you naked? I can clothe you. Have you nothing to bring with you? No price, no money, no goodness, no merit? I can and will take you to myself, just as you are, poor, naked, penniless, worthless. For such I came to seek, such I came to call, for such I came to die. Lord, I believe, exclaims the poor, convinced soul, help thou mine unbelief. Thou art just the Savior that I want. I wanted one that could and would save me with all my vileness, with all my rags, with all my poverty. I wanted one that would save me fully, save me freely, save me as an act of mere, unmerited, undeserved grace. I have found him whom my soul loveth, and will be his through time and his through eternity." Thus effectually does the blessed Spirit call a sinner by His special, direct, and supernatural power out of darkness into marvelous light. I will work, saith God, and who shall let it, that is, turn it back? This great work the Holy Ghost sustains in the soul. As He is the author, so He is the supporter. He breathed the spiritual life, and He keeps and nourishes and watches over it. Let it not be supposed that there is anything in this life that could keep itself. There is no principle in divine grace that can keep this life from divine, uh, decline and decay if it be not watched over, nourished, sustained, and revived perpetually by the same omnipotent power that implanted it there. It is liable to constant decline. What experienced child of God has not felt this declination? Where is the believer who has not been made solemnly and painfully to learn of the declension of the soul? That there is not a grace of the Spirit in him, but that grace needs at times greatly invigorating, not a particle of faith, but it needs strengthening, not a lesson, but he needs to relearn it, not a precept, but requires to be rewritten upon his heart, now this is the work of our ever-watchful, ever-loving, ever-faithful Spirit. He watches over with a sleepless, loving eye the work He has begun in the soul. Not a moment, but He has His eye upon it. By night and by day, in summer and in winter, when it decays and when it revives, He is there, its guardian and its protector, its author and its finisher. And how does He nourish it? Spiritually, as the life is spiritual, so the support is spiritual. First Peter 2.2 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. First Timothy 4.6 Nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine. How does he nourish it? By leading the soul to Jesus, the substance of all spiritual truth, by unfolding his fullness of all grace, strength, and sanctification, by leading constantly to his blood and righteousness, by teaching the believer the sweet lesson of living out of himself, his convictions, his enjoyments, his fruitfulness, upon Christ and Christ alone. What is there in a child of God in his best estate that can supply adequate nourishment and support for this 
principle of divine life. He has no resources within himself. He cannot live upon evidences, how soon they are clouded. He cannot grow upon enjoyment, how soon it is gone. He cannot find nourishment in any part of the work of the Spirit within him, precious and glorious as that work is. Christ is the true bread that sustains the life of God in the soul of man. Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. Again, as the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. The renewed soul only lives as it lives on Jesus. It only advances, grows, and brings forth much fruit as it draws its vigor, its nourishment, its support and fruitfulness simply and entirely from Christ. These again are fruitfulness simply and entirely from Christ. His words, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. Reader, it may be that for a long time you have been looking to yourself for nourishment, for strength, for comfort, and for fruitfulness, and the more you've looked within yourself, the more emptiness, poverty, and barrenness you have discovered. And now... The blessed Spirit, the nourisher as he is the author of the life within you, may give you such a new and enlarged view of Jesus as you have never had before. It may be that he will unfold to your soul such a fullness in Christ, strength for your weakness, wisdom for your folly, grace for every corruption, tenderness and sympathy for every trial, as will bring you out of your bondage, introduce you into a large room, and cause you to exclaim, Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Thus does the Spirit nourish and sustain the work he has wrought in the soul. He leads to Jesus. I must not omit to notice the use of sanctified trial as one means frequently made by the Spirit subservient to this great end. In order to stir up His own grace within us, the Lord often places us under some heavy affliction. Did He not thus deal with His servant Job and with a host more of the Old Testament saints? Messenger upon messenger arrives, and billow upon billow rolls, but bearing the precious tidings, though they may speak roughly, as Joseph did to his brethren, of God's love to our souls, that our brother lives, that Joseph is alive and loves us still, that there is plenty of corn in Egypt, and that all we need do is simply to come and partake of it. What new life the news infuses into us! What new energy! What an impulse! What a new spring to hope! Faith, joy, and wondering gratitude! Blessed result when our afflictions are thus sanctified. When they arouse our souls, when they impart new energy to prayer, new vigor to faith, a new spring to hope, a new thirst for holiness, and a new motive and encouragement to trust in God, we can then truly say, It has been good for me that I have been afflicted. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 731, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.